We ask once again that your word would be a lamp to our feet, that it would be a light to our path, and that by it we might see Jesus and be changed by him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. During this Advent season, we're slowing down to look at just one a chapter from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus was born, and a prophet is someone who spoke God's words to God's people at a particular time and in a particular place. And as you look at the different prophets in the Old Testament, there there are two core elements of every prophet's ministry. On the one hand, there is a call, and on the other hand, there is a comfort. So there is a call. There is God speaking to his people of words of command, Words of warning, words of invitation, calling us to turn away from the very things that are taking life and to turn back to him as the source of our life. So that is the call. But then there is also a comfort that accompanies all of these prophets' ministries. They are words of encouragement, words of promise, words of hope, words of support that it doesn't all rest on you, but that God is acting. God is active, accomplishing his good purposes in your midst. And this morning in our passage, we find both. We find both a a call to something and a comfort with something. And underneath this call and this comfort, there are going to be two simple questions that I want us all to sit with. And as you sit with this, I don't want you to consider these questions through the lens of your spouse through the lens of your kids, through the lens of your neighbor, but I want you to ask these questions for yourself during this Advent season. First, will you obey this call? And second, will you rest in this comfort? So with the call and comfort, will you obey this call and will you rest in this comfort? So first, will you obey this call? As I was writing this, I was originally going to ask the question, will you listen to this call? Because when we hear the word obey, it tends to stir up things inside of us. It can come across as a very forceful word. We generally don't like to talk much about obedience because obedience has to do with someone else outside of us telling and directing and guiding us how we should live. And we like the freedom to choose our own way. And also on top of that, we've also seen this power misused by others. So that when we are told what to do, it does not come from a place of love. It does not come from a place that says, I am for you in all things. And so we tend to be resistant to this idea of obeying. But but I, I went back and I chose it intentionally because you can listen And you can understand something, but that's as far as it might go. The call is more than that. There is a call to action. There is a call in this passage for us to do something, to respond in a particular way that takes intention. And so we can say we're either going to respond and act on the call, or we won't. 
And while we remember that these words were given long ago to Israel, we also remember these words from the New Testament that said, whatever was written in those former days was written also for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So these things that were written long ago were written to guide us into hope. So there are four actions that we are called to take from these few words. First, we are called to seek. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We've all played hide and seek at some point in our lives. We know how it works. To seek after something is simply to look for something. Now, there are different degrees of looking for things. So last night, I'm putting away the laundry. And at the end of the laundry, it's always the socks. And the socks always don't seem to match up. And so I'm looking for a sock that matches the one that I have in my hand. I'm not able to find it. I looked for about 10 seconds. I give up. I stuff it all in my dresser. I'm done. That's one kind of looking. Another kind of looking is I remember when my kids were younger and one of them was lost in store. And if if you've been through that as a parent, you know the panic that you feel and how your mind begins to rush to all these different scenarios, worst case scenarios of what this could be. I promise you in that moment, my looking for my son who is lost was very, very different than my looking last night for a sock that's missing. So when God calls us to seek and to look for something, what kind of of looking is he calling us to? There is an urgency to the looking. There is an intensity to the looking. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago at the beginning of Isaiah 55. Do you remember what God invites us to? He says, everyone, all of you who are hungry, come and eat. All of you who are thirsty, come and drink. Listen to me that your soul might live. The kind of seeking that God is after in this passage is is that of seeking for food when we're dying of starvation. Seeking for water when we are dying of thirst. Now, if you are dying of hunger or of thirst, I promise you, you are passionately and intensely looking for food and water. It's going to be on your mind. It's going to be on your heart. It is going to be number one priority. That is the kind of seeking that God is inviting us and calling and even commanding from us. Come that your soul As the psalmist said long ago, as the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants and longs and thirsts for you. I know that all of us in here are at different places in our journey of faith. Some are just exploring and some have been walking with Jesus for many decades. But wherever you are, how would you describe in the honesty of your heart what you are seeking after God looks like? And these questions are not meant to make you feel guilty, but they are meant to guide and direct to the path of life. What does your seeking after God look like? And another way to look at this, what are you looking? We are all people who are constantly seeking and looking 
for things that are valuable and important to us. What are you pursuing? What fills your mind? What do you dream about? What do you long for? What are you saying that if I, if I just had this, then my life would be complete? Second, we're commanded to call upon. Call upon the Lord while he is near. To call upon someone is not just to reach out and to connect. To call upon someone is to plead with them for some type of deliverance and rescue. Psalm 18.6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Psalm 86.7, in the day of my trouble, I called upon you for you answer me. Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love all who call upon you. When you are in trouble, where do you turn? When you find yourself in difficult spots in life, it's been a difficult year. Who or what do you turn to saying, this will deliver me, this will help, this will be my rescue? For some of us, we redouble our own efforts. We look inside ourselves and say, we can do this. Try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and redouble our efforts. For others of us, we just give in to despair. We complain. We become bitter. And we give up in all sorts of ways. Instead of calling upon help outside of ourselves, we just give up. For others, we look to distractions and ways to escape from our troubles, entertainment, alcohol, even exercise. This, if I could just numb out, these are things that we functionally call upon, saying, this will help, this will deliver me. The heart of faith is a simple cry that says help. As you look back on a difficult year, how are you responding to the troubles of your life? And what might it look like for you in the days and weeks ahead to call upon the Lord, to look and say, help. I'm desperate. To take that desperation and to funnel it towards him relentlessly. Third, we're called to forsake. To forsake is to let go, to give up, to say no, to leave behind. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus said, uh, with love, leave everything and follow me and come and you will find treasure in heaven. And he looked at what he had and he looked at what Jesus was offering and he went away because he sat because he wasn't willing to let go of his treasure in order to hold on to and embrace and follow this greater treasure. He was unwilling to forsake something of inferior value in order to have something of infinite value. Let the wicked forsake his ways and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Notice that God uses extreme language here, the the wicked, the unrighteous, because he's trying to say, this is how far my invitation goes. 
It goes out to the worst of humanity. There are no limits to my mercy. There are no limits to my grace. You cannot look and say, I don't fit in this category. God is saying, I'm I'm casting the net wide. Return to me. A friend of mine is uh, running a marathon this week. And if you are running a marathon, if you want to make it through the 26 plus miles, you are not going to be carrying any extra baggage. You're not going to see anybody running this race with any book bag or any weights or any dumbbells. You're, You're trying to limit your weight in order to help you run. And the author of Hebrews in another place in the New Testament uses this example of running to talk about how we should leave behind things in our own race. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and and entraps us and trips us up. And let us run with perseverance this race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Never forget that the forsaking or the leaving behind is not an end of itself. It is always a means to holding on to something much better. What might be you, what might God be calling you to leave behind during this Advent season? To say that this is simply not helping me run. This isn't helping me know Jesus. This isn't helping me love and give of myself sacrificially to my family, to my friends. And what's keeping you from letting it go? Fourth and finally on these actions, we're called to return. To return is to come back. Let him return to the Lord. Returning is a coming back home. It's it's coming back really to a relationship that is in itself home for us. Returning is not something, hear this, returning is not something we do one time in our life. Returning is a way of life. Um, We are good at wandering and we need to become even better at returning. Sometimes returning isn't easy because what, what keeps us from returning wholeheartedly often to God, and there are many different things, but, but something that is highlighted in this text is this underlying belief that God doesn't want anything to do with us. That if we come back, what we will find is not mercy, but judgment. Not delight, but frustration. Not joy, but Disappointment when we come back with all that we are honestly and saying, This is who I am, we are often afraid of what we will find. If I come back, if I really come back, I just don't think it will go well. But God is trying to convince us that He is so much bigger, so much better than we think. And this brings us to our final question not, not just will you obey this call and these actions, but will you rest in this comfort? One of the the best pictures from returning, and I know it's a passage we are very familiar with, comes from this prodigal son. A young man comes to his father, demands his inheritance, which at that point was given at the father's death. So it's basically him saying, "I, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I care about what's mine. Give me what's mine so I don't have to wait for you to die. And then he goes off, and what does he do? He squanders it on reckless living, parties, prostitutes, and anything else he could think of. And then when he's broke, 
finds himself feeding pigs. He gets this idea that maybe, just maybe, I can go home. But surely, if I go home, there's no way that I can be welcomed back as a son. There's no way that I can be welcomed back with joy and with delight and with open arms. But there's a chance. Maybe there's just a, it is a long shot. This is a Hail Mary that I can go back and convince my father to welcome me back simply as a hired servant. Not a part of the family, but somebody who is around who can be on the periphery. And that's what returning might look like. So he prepares this speech and he goes back to his father expecting this new place in the family. He'll say, Father, I've sinned. And he rehearses the speech when when he finally sees his father. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me one of your hired servants. Let me take this lower place. But as he's coming back, as he's rehearsing this script in his head, he sees his father. We see, we read that it's it's a very far way off. It's a long way. It's out of the distance. You can almost imagine the father looking, watching, and waiting. And then when he sees this speck appear, there's this thought maybe that, maybe that's my son. And as he gets closer, he sees the outline, and this is my son. And what does he do? He doesn't just he doesn't just wait there. He doesn't fold his arms. He doesn't prepare his own speech of I'm going to tell him all the things that he did wrong. And if he if he has any hopes of coming back here, it's going to be on his hands and knees. What we read is that the father runs, embraces him kisses him, felt compassion, embraces him. And the son tries to give this speech and the father has nothing to do with it. He says to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's celebrate. My son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found they began to celebrate. A story so familiar to us that we hear it as kind of a, a, a beautiful story of grace. Uh, the original audience would not have heard it that way. This story that Jesus told was offensive to them. It's hard for us to get in their mindset, but the shame of the son and what he did would have been almost impossible for them to get over. Then the shamelessness of the father in running in his response to this wayward son would have been incredibly difficult for them to get over. This story went against the grain of what a good father would do. But here's where God says to them and to us, and even in our passage, I'm not like you. That's good news. Return to me and I will have compassion. I will abundantly pardon you. How do we know? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
so much growing up. I, I heard this verse as just God talking about how big and how powerful and how intelligent he is. But in the context, that's not what he's trying to convince us of. He's trying to convince us that if you return to me, no matter how far you've wandered off, no matter what you've done with your life, if you return to me, you will find something much better than you expect. I'm not like you. I'm not like your parents. I'm not like your enemies. I'm, I'm so much greater abounding in steadfast love and compassion towards you. Yes, we are called to seek. Yes, we are called to call upon. Yes, we are called to leave behind. And yes, we are called to return. But we will never do that with any type of fullness or consistency unless we're able to see that what we are returning to is something beautiful. That the welcome that we will receive is something better than we can ever imagine that what we're seeking after is of more beauty and more value than anything. The father, the father waited for his son and then out of his wealth, he sacrificed in welcoming him back. But this season of Advent, and I'll close with this, this season of Advent shows us how much even of greater lengths our God will go to rescue us, to bring us home. I love how Frederick Beekers describes it. Once we have seen God in a stable, in this lowest of low places, the cold and the hunger and the poverty, once we have seen God in a stable, we can never be sure what lengths he will go or what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of men. If that's true of the birth of Jesus, that we are meant to look at that manger and say, that's crazy, the lengths that God has gone. How much more when we look at the cross? There we see even more clearly the ludicrous depths of self-humiliation, the pain he will suffer, the loss he will endure to take away our guilt, to take away the curse, to bring us new life, this wild pursuit. Why? To bring us hope. That's why in his book, Return of the Prodigal, Henry Nouwen says this, I'm beginning to see how radically the character of my own spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as as hiding out and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who is looking for me while I am doing the hiding. God is seeking. May this be a season of returning and rest for us all.